And so here's the interesting part. That practice of bringing the material up and working with it again, I think happens sometimes when we're not aware of happening, it happening. Maybe when we're just mind-wandering and maybe when we're asleep. So as we're asleep, information that you acquired recently comes up again and doesn't just sit there by itself, but connects to other things. Hardly anybody is studying dreams. I think in part because the methods were so limited. If, if the only thing you can do is talk to somebody and say, so tell me about your dream. What did you dream about? And that's the only data you get. It's really limited and hard to make progress. And so we have people arranged so that they can move their eyes left, right, left, right. And they can tell us, I just realized I'm in a dream. They make a specific left, right signal to tell us that. And then we know they're in a dream. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, everyone. It's Paul. And that was the voice of Ken Powler, who runs his cognitive neuroscience laboratory at Northwestern University. And Ken and his team have been in the popular science news uh, for the past couple years based on an experimental setup they developed to be able to communicate with people while they're in a state of lucid dreaming. So lucid dreaming is when you're in a dream and you're aware of the dream. And Ken's team developed a method to increase the chances of inducing a lucid dream in people, but then to go on and be able to ask them certain questions. Uh, right now, like easy math problems, and people can communicate using their eyes, the answers to those questions. And this ability to communicate with people while they're in their dreams has opened up the ability to ask a lot more questions about, for example, conscious states and related brain activity while people are sleeping versus when they're awake. But this is really just the, the latest in a long line of research that Ken has conducted based on his interests in consciousness and memory and the functions of sleep and how all those things are related. So during the episode, we talk about his interests in different forms of memory and how he got interested uh, in sleep research and then more recently dream research. So we cover a lot of ground here, including their Lucid Dreaming app that is publicly available through their website. And of course, I link to their website in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 133. Happy dreams out there. Hope you're doing well. Enjoy. Ken, I know that a lot of your uh, focus these days and for a long time has been on memory. But correct me if I'm wrong, did you get into neuroscience because of your interest in consciousness? That's true, certainly. I think part of the uh, exposure I got to psychology as an undergraduate made me enthusiastic about a lot of things. And my professors at UCLA advised me that starting with neuroscience would be a better way to go rather than emphasizing the psychology. If, if I'm interested in the intersection of the two, their advice was good advice to go get a neuroscience degree and then you can, then you can uh, move on to the more psychological aspects of, of neuroscience. So you think that was the right advice? I think it was. I, yeah, I think yeah. It, it's a little harder to go the other way because you, you don't quite have the foundation to build on in the same way. It's possible. Plenty of people do that too. But uh, that was the advice I got from, from folks at UCLA. Well, we're going to end up talking um, a little bit about some of the work you've done with lucid dreaming, um, which I know that you've garnered a lot of popular press about. 
but um, let's go. Let's get there by way of your work in memory. So, it, it, is your interest in consciousness is that is that what led you into studying memory? I suppose so, but I I might put it a little differently. You know, I stumbled into a, a great graduate program at UC San Diego, and then had some you know did rotations in labs and had uh, choices of what to uh, be exposed to, and then eventually pick for my dissertation topic, and so I ended up working in Larry Squire's lab, which was mm-hmm. a very exciting time in the 80s. There was new ideas about different sorts of memory. Declarative and procedural was the name at the time. And then it, it metamorphosed into declarative, non-declarative, which makes sense because the category of things that aren't declarative memory is a diverse set of different things. And that got me very excited and connected to my interest in consciousness because this division between declarative and non-declarative is really cutting across something close, but not the same as conscious memory and unconscious memory. In other words, the the type of memory that amnesic patients have the most trouble with Mm. is defined uh, in the Squire tradition as declarative memory, meaning the recall and recognition of facts and episodes. So that's a definition. It's a behavioral definition. It's not based on the person's experience. But in fact, when you recall and recognize facts and episodes, you have this conscious experience of knowing that you're remembering. And that's something that you don't get in all the types of non-declarative memory, which we've explored uh, over the next many decades. And, <laughs> you know, the early work with HM by Brenda Milner showed that, well, memory isn't all one thing because HM is still able to learn motor skills, certain motor tasks that he could do normally. And then it gradually expanded on more and more things that amnesics seem to have not just less trouble with, but seem to be normal at. Seems that the damage in in amnesia, the hippocampus and other structures, disrupts this ability to do the recall and recognition of facts and episodes, but leaves other types of memory intact. And so then at UCSD, there were some exciting studies uh, while I was there by Peter Graff, who worked together with Larry Squire and George Mandler, and they studied amnesic patients and started laying the foundation for another type of non-declarative memory called priming. Mm. So in priming, people will see a word or a face or, you know, any kind of stimulus, and then the next time they see it, they'll be perhaps a little bit more efficient processing it. Sometimes we call that fluency, and this fluency can be measured in a priming test, like you're quicker to read the word, or you read the word more efficiently and uh, maybe don't know that you're doing so. And Peter Graff in his study showed that the amnesic patients would be uh, processing words they saw previously differently. Although if you ask them to recall the words, they do very poorly. If you ask them to recognize which words they saw, they do very Mm -hmm. poorly, and yet they were quite normal at a priming test. The one they used first was a stem completion test. So you see a word like motel, and then later on, you're given a stem, M-O-T, and you're asked, Mm -hmm. just tell me any word that pops to mind. Give me the first word. You might say motor, you might say mother, you know, so there are different probabilities of the different words you might say, but it increases the likelihood that you're going to say motel if you've seen it earlier, even if you're amnesic. And even if you don't remember 
having seen any words previously, but you're still fluent at it. So that told, told us that this is another type of memory that doesn't depend on the hippocampus and doesn't have this conscious experience that goes with it. It's just something that happens as you work with the material. And when I learned of that study and I got enthused because, well, this is cutting right at what consciousness gets us. In other words, the, the, memory, the memory processing that you do to show priming seems not sufficient to give us the experience of, oh, I remember seeing the word motel earlier. So there's something extra that we get. And so now we have a, a little foot in the door of saying, well, what is that extra stuff that leads to a conscious experience? And it's, you know, it parallels perceptual subliminal uh -huh. experiments. So if, you know, if you, if you, if you're shown the word motel so briefly that you don't really know you saw it, it still might influence you. It might've got in a little bit, but you're not conscious of it if, if it's not shown for long enough in the right circumstances. And so that's, that also cuts it, but that's, you know, that's a little harder to study because it's very, you know, cloudy kind of right at the border between seeing it and not seeing it. And this work in amnesia really cut it very cleanly that these patients could mm. respond to words and faces and other stimuli differently. So they had stored some information, but not sufficient information to give them normal declarative memory. All right. So that was a little long winded, but that's the, that's the background of, how, how memory is, uh, memory research is really fundamentally right at this border between understanding what consciousness, you know, what is the, what are the requirements for a conscious experience versus not having one. And at the time, studying consciousness wasn't really in vogue. In fact, right. it was a little right. bit taboo. <laughs> and yet memory researchers were right in there saying, well, this seems to be exactly what, what's going on. And so other people call the distinction explicit memory and implicit memory. So amnesic patients can't do explicit memory. Mm -hmm. That's kind of conscious memory. And I think we just use the term declarative memory because I think it's not the, the, the hippocampal contribution isn't exactly mapping onto what you need to be conscious. It's just a really necessary component of it that it mm -hmm. allows for the conscious experience. So we don't define that type of memory that way. And there's some other border types of memory that fit on one side or the other and aren't really about whether you're conscious of the material or not. What's your overall picture these days about just memory in general, memories, right? The different lines of memories. It, it seems like every field of neuroscience that one goes into, you start, you have, like, for instance, I had a naive idea about quote unquote consciousness, right? When I went into neuroscience and then you start digging around and it's really not clear where lines are. And that's kind of what you were just talking about with memory and that there are about 4,000 different types of memory. Um, <laughs> is that uh, frustrating to you or is it exciting? What's you, what do you see as the current state of, of the study of memory? Do we, do we have the right ontological categories of memories now or is it still fuzzy? I, I think, it, you know, in science, it's got to be a continual effort to work harder to see, do we have things right or not? So I think we've made progress. And looking back on the 80s, there were a lot of people, even into the 90s, that were arguing, no, there's really one thing called memory. And we just have to understand the basic principles. And once we do that, you know, and maybe in conditioning paradigms, we'll figure it all out. And those, those principles really apply to all more complex types of memory. You just have to understand the different complexity. And that view got replaced got replaced with this multiple memory systems view where we say, no, actually, there are different brain mechanisms at work. 
and you can disrupt one brain system and not the other. And uh, it's complicated because these brain systems in most of us work together and they interact and they're not mm. separate, but we can separate them out experimentally and understand a little bit about how they're different types of memory and they work on different principles. So conditioning principles aren't the same as skill learning, which is a little different than fact learning and the priming I was talking about. So we, we kind of acknowledge that we need to work out the principles of memory separately in these different domains. And I would agree with you, maybe we have the domains, right? <laughs> maybe we don't. We continue working on them. And as we get to a more and more fundamental understanding of a type of memory and the neural circuitry involved, mm -hmm. then we can say, actually, is this type of memory really different from the other type? Or, you know, is one happening in the auditory system and the other in the visual system? But really, they're the same sort of thing. So that's not a fundamental distinction. Whereas another argument, you know, what's happening in the striatum might be really, this is quite different in the way it works. So I think we start out with a behavioral understanding of memory. You know, what does it feel like to remember a fact or something else? And we build on that. But to have a more fundamental understanding, we need to know all the neuroscience too. And then we can ask, we can better equipped to ask the question, well, which are the fundamentally different types of memory? And understanding the principles behind them. So that's my position on that. Uh, I mean, I, I was trying to make a slide um, to kind of dissect and go through the different forms of memory, right? And that's just a frustrating endeavor these days because th there are too many little bubbles on there with, with words in them, right? So, so it's, I don't know, it's kind of an, everything happens that happens in science happens with this kind of explosion, right? Where we become finer and finer grained divisions between concepts. Right. Well, for me, I think the fundamental distinction, you know, there may be many types of non-declarative memory mm -hmm. and even types of declarative memory, but I think there's pretty widespread agreement on that distinction that in mem memory research is all over the place, acknowledge that distinction, even if they give it different terms, it's, you know, it's, it's cut so clearly in amnesic patients that mm -hmm. we could bicker about how is perceptual priming different from conceptual priming and things like that. And when do they overlap? But Declarative, non-declarative, it's, you know, there's a clear border and then there are little, little other types of memory that fit near the border because maybe it's implicit memory, but it depends on the hippocampus in certain ways. And so it, it doesn't quite fit into the structure neatly, but I think that's okay. That just means, well, there's s some plurality of types of memory that makes it all interesting, but there is this broad distinction that's, that we agree upon. How much do you think, um, you know, I've, I, as I've learned more throughout my quote-unquote career, uh, I've appreciated more how much goes on under the hood without awareness, without our subjective awareness. You, you just mentioned what it feels like to have a memory. Uh, how much goes on under the hood in your current, how much learning and memory, right, are we not aware of? And does it matter when we're aware of it? Yes, that's a fundamental aspect of understanding the neuroscience of consciousness to say, what do we get by having these conscious experiences? And in the memory realm, we have been studying that, comparing implicit memory to explicit memory, seeing how they work differently and how do they interact in certain circumstances. So they seem to be fundamentally different uh, in terms of the neural structures required and also you know, different in other ways. So you know, your, your question is about, is, is there something, I don't know how to, how to put your question. You're saying, okay, so explicit memory. Well, we could talk about your targeted reactivation, for example, right? So 
Um, the day before someone sleeps, right? You you teach them. Let for as an example, you teach them to play Guitar Hero, right? Uh, and then you associate that with something else um, while they're playing Guitar Hero. And while they're sleeping, let's say you, you associate it with uh, you know a sound, right? A car horn or something. And while they're sleeping, you can play that car horn at a really low level while they're in deep sleep. And when they wake up, they're better guitar guitar hero players compared to people who didn't get that targeted reactivation with the car horn. And of course, that's all taking place under the hood. And that's a lot of what you've learned about is just how much we are continuing to consolidate what we've learned into our memories while we sleep, right? But if I am learning a new vocabulary word and I think about it real hard and repeat it and repeat it, some, and I'm aware of it, somehow that also uh, is consolidating and and helping me learn. So there's this fuzzy, well, it's unclear to me, and you you have all the answers, you know, how important awareness, consciousness is to um, uh, to making memories, to, to learning new things and making memories. I know it's a, an impossible question. Well, I think one of the things about your question is it's kind of jumped ahead uh, to mix up some things. So if we, mm. we should separate out at the time of retrieval, when you're retrieving a memory, Sometimes you're conscious of the fact that you're retrieving a memory. And other times you're just engaging in some practice and maybe you're better at it than you were before, but you don't really know that that's because of your practice. You're just good at it. So there's something different about the experience of demonstrating a memory when you also have that, we could call it meta memory, some knowledge of the fact that you're remembering at the time. And that's what we think about as conscious memory. When I consciously remember what I did yesterday, or I consciously remember some facts that I know, I can think about it in this more complex way, because I'm bringing a lot of additional knowledge to bear, and not just engaging in some activity more efficiently. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think that's fundamentally different at the time of retrieval. But your your question also brought up, well, what happens before retrieval? So to actually form a memory and then maintain it for some period of time, and then retrieve it. A lot of that is happening under the hood, as, as you said. It's, it's happening without your uh, awareness of all the steps that got you to that point. Or consent. <laughs> yeah. So the, unco- the, the type of awareness you have at retrieval is one aspect of consciousness in, in its relationship to memory. And another aspect is all the stuff that happens in the intervening time, which we sometimes refer to as consolidation, which is essentially saying, well, memories can actually change over time. It's not just formed at one point and static until you then retrieve it. But actually, there's a lot of change going on. And of course, we know that change happens. Some of it we call forgetting. (laughs) You You forget details or you forget everything. That's one of the changes that you can have. But sometimes the... uh forgetting isn't happening. And instead, there's something that you maintain and you're able to remember it later. And consolidation is this process in the brain that we think is changing the way the memory is stored. And that's, again, different for different types of memory. But for declarative memory, for facts and episodes, we think that it's a change in which brain structures are playing critical roles. Hmm. So the, the thinking is that we should talk about the cerebral cortex. It has all these different regions that have different sort of specializations. And some areas get visual information about faces and can really help you discriminate different faces. And others are processing color or shape or all these different aspects. But when you're 
uh, perceiving an episode, you bring together all those things. There's, it's a very multimodal, all the different senses yeah. coming together in different concepts, and you, you understand an experience. So you need all these cortical areas. And to actually store that memory, you need to link those different parts together. So they're in different parts of the cortex working away, and you kind of experience it all at one time. But then storing it requires keeping all those connections, and those can form in the cortex. But it seems that if you don't also have the hippocampal structures helping the cortex, hmm. then that memory isn't standing much of a chance of staying around. So the hippocampus keeps it together, and then eventually the cortex seems to be really good at keeping it by itself, even if you've lost your hippocampal function after some delay. So hmm. the consolidation period is the hippocampus and the cortex working together so that the cortex eventually has something that can stick with you for, you know, your whole life even. And that that's what we think about as the systems level consolidation of a declarative memory. And it happens without us knowing it, right? We don't we need, need to know about that. Uh, though you sometimes you do, like if you're an actor, you're learning some lines for your part. And you have to study it and you have to practice it and you have to go over it and think about it. And eventually you've got it and you can perform it. And you, you kind of understand, well, I have to do the work for that memory to be there. We don't always have to do so much work. If you, if you meet a person and you get their name and then you want to be able to call them by their name later, you have to have stored that effectively. And how do you do that? Well, sometimes it happens and you're lucky, but sometimes you put in the work and you think about their name and you, you think, okay, uh, let's see now, how are you doing today, Paul? And you might use the name and right. <laughs> uh, bring it up. You practice it. And that practice is part of the consolidation process. And so here's the interesting part, that practice of bringing the material up and working with it again, I think happens sometimes when we're not aware of happening, it happening, maybe when we're just mind wandering and maybe when we're asleep. So mm -hmm. as we're asleep, information that you acquired recently comes up again and doesn't just sit there by itself, but connects to other things and gets worked with. And that's just like the, the practice that a, an actor might do when they're learning their lines. The stuff comes up, it gets uh, mixed about, and if it connects well with other things, it's more likely to then have a solid foundation to stick with you. So that's one of the implicit processing examples uh, related to consolidation, that the, the working with that information is going to help you remember it later. And so I don't think there are memories that just get formed and then left alone for, you know, days or months, and then you got it again. I don't think that happens much. It's just going to fade <laughs> if it's not used, if it's not integrated with other things you know. And so we can do that intentionally when we want to, if you're in a class, you want to learn things, you're, you're, you're studying, you're thinking about the stuff over and over again. Uh, and I think you're doing that even when you're not intending to do it as in your sleep. And that's what the, that's exciting about this new dimension of memory research that I didn't work on, you know, for the first two decades of my work in memory research, but it was always lurking there is pretty interesting. You know, what's sleep about? What are dreams about? You know, those were just mystery questions, but then they connected to say, oh, you know, people have theorized about that, but now we have actually good evidence that memories are reactivated during sleep and that that influences what you can remember later. Sleep has become a really popular uh, topic. And, you know, as, it, as it's studied more, its importance is appreciated more and more. 
But of course, in sleep, you have you know, these different phases, right? And, you know, like when you're doing targeted reactivation studies, you have to uh, reactivate at certain phases of sleep to to optimize the uh, reactivated uh, learned information. And of course, during wakefulness, we have different uh, phases of wakefulness, I'll, I, I would say. I don't even, are there different phases technically of wakefulness like there are yeah. for sleep? I don't even know. Well, yeah, it's absurd to think that wake is one thing and sleep is these right. four different things <laughs> that you have. It's, it's quite the reverse. You know, there, there may be four <laughs> different types of broadly defined stages in sleep, and then there's zillions of things you could be doing during wake. So I would agree with you on that. And we're still trying to figure out, you know, what are the critical features of sleep? So we've been given this idea of stages from the early sleep research right. many decades right. ago. And, and it's just stuck with us. It's, that there's, there's, it's hard to get rid of that orthodox view of those are the stages. But everyone looks at sleep and they kind of know, actually, it's more calm. You know, there are more interesting things happening like that. And yes, there seems to be this interesting progression where you start off in what we call light sleep or non-REM stage one, and you move to stage two and three. And so you get what, what you might call as deeper sleep. And the development of slow waves happens then. And then you come out of that and you might have a REM period after that. And then you might repeat that cycle, you know, maybe going on another an hour, hour and a half. So those are the cycles of sleep stages that are not exactly that way every cycle. And, you know, people go through them differently. There's a whole, you know, plurality of ways things work. But the general principle still seems to be there that you have to go through the light sleep to get to the deep sleep. The deep sleep is very restorative. And so you don't want to miss out on that. And maybe there's some penalties of missing out on the REM sleep, which you'll get more in the morning, except if you get up too early and don't get the REM sleep. So the, these different stages uh, have this, you know, nice sequence and presumably some uh, functional reasons why it's laid out that way, something that's adaptive about doing it in that particular way that hasn't quite been figured out yet in all dimensions. So what what exactly is uh, the best sort of sleep? So talking about sleep hygiene uh, connects to the idea of just getting good quality sleep. So what is good quality sleep? Well, for one, you wake up and the next day you're not sleepy. <laughs> so that's a good, you must have had good sleep. Uh, and so we could say, is that seven hours? Is that eight hours? It varies from person to person what might do it. And of course, if you're just getting caffeine during the day, that interacts with what's happening. Uh, it has to be at 90 minute intervals, right? You have to wake up at a, at the 90 minute. You have uh, packets of 90 minutes. Isn't that the rule? That's that seems to be the norm. It's not there. There are lots okay. of exceptions to that. Sure. And and I, I also was getting at the idea that um, if we want to think of what good quality sleep is, we should really think even more thoroughly. So. It, you know, it might be measuring how many hours of sleep you got because you can do that. But really, it's, well, how much slow wave sleep did you got, did you get? And, and how big are your slow waves? So we, can, we have those measures. And mm. I think we need to even move beyond that because we want to really say, from my point of view, what kind of memory processing did you do overnight? And was that mm -hmm. effective for you? And maybe we should look at that to say, well, if you didn't really have good sleep, if you were spending your night going over and over this negative thing that happened to you and just working in, you know, in a depressing way, thinking about these depressing thoughts that might not be good quality sleep. And yet we don't get a measure of that if we just say how many hours of sleep you had. So I think our more sophisticated future of sleep quality 
our, our definition will get better and we'll understand, well, it's, it's, it's about all the things that your brain is doing during sleep that can help you. And, you know, your example of wearing a sleep mask is a nice one. And there are new studies coming out saying how, yeah, getting exposed to light really disrupts things and a sleep mask can help you with that. There, you know, we can think about the physiology of that in, in terms of, you know, the cardiac issues that come up and as well as, as well as, you know, just whether you're actually getting the sleep you need because the, the light is, is sort of signaling your body that it's time to wake up or that it's not time to go to sleep yet. And of course, throughout the lifetime, I'm sure, I mean, these are all gradients that, you know, the, the quality of your sleep changes and what you need and et cetera. When is that future that you alluded to when we will understand the, I'm going to use the word optimal again, the optimal sleep, wake, cycle, read Tolstoy right before sleep and do math problems right when you wake up, et cetera. When are, how close are we to that? And where do you see this field in terms of the end goal, right? Well, I think it's an exciting, it's an exciting time to just be exploring those questions more than we have in the past and bringing it in. And, you know, I, th I think an important um, principle of sleep is that there isn't just one reason why we sleep. And, <laughs> and that's, that's been a mistake that I've seen some sleep researchers take as they say, well, what's the reason we sleep? And they look at different animals and they say, well, it's really to, to keep out of dangerous situations for safety. And, you know, maybe that's true for some animals. Wow. But, you know, none of, you look at the biology of, you know, our, our whole body, there doesn't need to be one reason for, for a thing. There can be many reasons. Like, you know, we have respiration to help us get oxygen, but look, it helps us communicate too. <laughs> we have this, we, we co-op the same apparatus to, for communication. So I think sleep is, beneficial for many reasons, not just one. And I'm focusing on the memory benefits of sleep, which had been controversial because other people were saying, well, no, that's not the main thing. The main thing is something else. And, you know, it, it took a long time for sleep researchers to be convinced that, oh, actually, memory is something that's uh, connected to sleep and that there's improvements as a function of, of getting sleep. And part of that was the methodologies we had weren't so good. For example, if you just had sleep deprivation of your method, you'd say, well, either people get sleep or you make them stay up all night. And what's the problem of a person that's been staying up all night? You know, they're, they're not paying attention well. They're not, you know, remembering well, all sorts of things. It's a very crude way to ask the question. And even just comparing <laughs> eight hours of sleep and eight hours of wake is messy, kind of for the reason you said. It depends on what's happening during that eight hours of wake. It's, it's all these different things. So we have now more sophisticated ways of looking at sleep and actually connecting it with the neurophysiology, which is also very exciting that, uh, you know, I've been looking at EEG for a long time. I did that also in grad school with Steve Hilliard and Marta Kudis and learned all about ERP methods and how to use EEG. And, you know, we'd see these signals in the, in the brain waves and try to attribute them to some psychological process. And now we do the same thing in sleep in a sense. So we see the slow waves and we try to say, what's going on there? Is it just a, a, you know, a distant reflection of something? And now it seems that no, it's actually part of the mechanism that the slow waves are actually indexing a neural firing that's connected together that lots of neurons are firing at the same time at the upstage of a slow wave. And that that's uh, part of the mechanism that helps the other 
aspects of brain waves such as the sleep spindles and the ripples and you know these cute names for different types of signals that we can record that are giving us uh, some indication of what's happening in the brain and so now we know that oh those particular measures correlate with whether memory gets improved so we we can actually tag those measures and say well they're part of the physiology we don't know the full physiology of course we just have these hints but those hints say there's some important physiology happening during sleep where memories are processed and to the extent that that happens your memory is different often better when you wake up for those specific memories so we we can we don't just have to say well is sleep better for memory than wake is because wake is good for memory too it turns out right right but we're actually saying well but we're sleeping every night and the sleep is contributing to our memory abilities because we can see these relationships of the sleep spindles and the slow waves indexing part of the critical processing that we can now like measure and connect that to the behavioral improvements in memory that we see and so that's the the target memory reactivation method that you mentioned is one of the ways we do that, because we can ask, well, if we pro if we kind of provoke you to reactivate a memory during your sleep, what are the repercussions of that? And we've seen that in a lot of examples that it changes how well you can remember later. In other words, not surprisingly, there's neuroplasticity, <laughs> and when you when you reactivate a memory, the the neural circuits that are involved don't just statically do that and stay exactly as they were, but they change each time you use them. A basic principle of neuroplasticity, and it happens during sleep when you reactivate memories and then see the benefits later. So we have all these different angles now of understanding how is sleep important and and allowing us to dig in and try to understand the neural mechanisms better and therefore understand, well, how what's a good night's sleep all about? <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned, you know, the different EEG signatures that you can uh, observe and tell when someone is in different quote unquote stages of sleep, although uh, you also mentioned that it's more of a gradient than, you know, these these clear lines. And you also mentioned like sleep spindles, right, which are associated with uh, replay events in the brain where uh, which are thought to, you know, where you're replaying your memories forwards and backwards, and that's thought to help consolidate those memories within the neocortex. But, the, you know, at least sleep, well, at least replay, and I assume sleep spindles happen when you're awake also. Is there something that happens during sleep that is fundamentally uh, new or different than, or, or, or something that happens in sleep that does not happen during wakefulness? Or is it all just gradients? Do things in sleep get ramped up and some other things get ramped down? Or, or is there a nice bright line where we can say this happens during sleep and it doesn't happen during wakefulness? Well, you know, there's some of both, interestingly. And if you take an example like the hippocampal ripples, those can be seen both during sleep and wake. And lots of studies are getting at what the functional relationships are between those and memory processing. Uh, and then we can study, well, what happens when you practice some information, when you do rehearsal while you're awake? And what mm -hmm. are the neurocorrelates of that? And, you know, lots of work. That's what I worked on a lot before I even studied sleep. Uh, lots of work on that. But as you're looking at the EG, the EG is really quite different during sleep. So this occurrence of slow waves and the, the timing of those with the spindles, that's not something that you see during wake. So that's, you know, I think... We could ask the question, you know, more broadly speaking, 
what's the difference between rehearsing information when you're awake and consolidation moving forward and rehearsing information when you're asleep, also moving consolidation forward? And that's still an open question, and there, there may be many similarities, but one suggestion that makes you think they're different is this occurrence of slow waves and spindles during sleep. And it's not the pattern of a, you know, a, a person studying information, you know, reading their textbook and trying to learn. You don't see those patterns of brain activity. You see the waking EEG, which is quite different mm -hmm. than the stage three so-called slow wave sleep stage. So just at a broad level of brain activity, it looks quite different. And there, again, I'm open to the idea there might be some commonalities between what's happening. There should be some, but there also seem to be some differences. And, and that's kind of something to dig into as saying, what is special about sleep and memory processing? And, and of course, one thing that's different about sleep is you're not being bombarded by so much sensory information. You're right. not walking around. You're not getting a lot of information, your eyes are closed. And, you know, that kind of connects with it. the old way of thinking, which was that when you're sleeping, you're pretty much blocking out sensory information. And that allows your brain to just work on things that it's busy working on. And that uh, was, was an orthodox view that we kind of defied in our research because we went ahead anyway and said, well, let's present sounds to people. And the old thinking was, well, if you present sounds or, you know, words or anything to people, right. yeah. it's, it's going to wake them up. And if it doesn't wake them up, it's just because it's being blocked out and nothing's getting in. So you shouldn't see anything working at all. And in fact, I have a nice little video clip of Matt Walker saying that in one of his lectures about how, it's, you know, it's all <laughs> blocked. You shouldn't expect anything to happen except maybe some olfactory information could get in. Uh, but we, you know, we didn't not being a sleep researcher for a long time, we went ahead in my lab and did a targeted memory reactivation study in, in 2009. And it was kind of modeled after a prior study that was done by uh, Bjorn Rasch and his colleagues in Germany, published in 2007. And they had presented odors during sleep. Mm -hmm. And the odors were presented both when people learned some spatial information prior to sleep, and, and it was a rose odor. And that rose odor was presented again during slow-wave sleep or during REM. And then when people woke up, they got tested on the spatial knowledge. And it turns out if they had been presented both during learning and during slow-wave sleep, their memory was improved for that information. If it was presented during learning and during REM, they didn't see that improvement. So um, that result pushed people away from focusing on REM because in the prior decades, if people theorized about memory and sleep, they always said it must be REM sleep and dreaming and all that. And here, wait, all of a sudden, slow-wave sleep gave them the result. And importantly, they didn't get the result if you didn't present it during learning. So if you only got the rose odor during slow-wave sleep, no benefit. It's only that it connects. So the idea was that the rose odor reminds you of your learning, and then you start thinking about those objects in their spatial locations and remember that information better. So that's why you call it targeted memory reactivation. The odor made you reactivate those memories. And in my lab, we went ahead and do this, did the same sort of experiment, except we used sounds instead, not believing. Which you're not supposed to do. The orthodox, not supposed to do right. that. <laughs> it was taboo, in fact. You know, I think, because if you look at it from the 1950s, people started doing some experiments like that. And they were thinking, you know, we can do things to make people better in their sleep and learn stuff even. And some papers came out saying, well, actually all that finding is flawed because they didn't measure the EG. And if you measure it, you can show that if people learn anything during sleep, it's because they woke up for a moment. 
Right. And they learned it. And it's all an artifact. And so decade after decade, sleep researchers stayed away from that because it was just, you know, if they did studies like that, they just kept them in their lab and didn't publish them because they were ashamed of, of doing such things. And then it turns out, you know, that the views kind of gradually changed. And now we can see, you no, know, actually, some information gets in odors, particularly because Bjorn Rash thought, well, let's use odors because that's not going to wake people up. They didn't want to use sounds. Oh, yeah. We use sounds, but presented them very softly, just you know, whispers. And mm -hmm. we found that the memories that we reactivated for spatial information, again, it was they get words you know, or sounds like a sound of meow uh, when they see the cat and they have to learn the location of the cat. They get the same sound and another 25 sounds during sleep. And then their memory for locations is improved for those specific memories that we reactivated with those specific sounds. And it has to be that the, you know, the, that behavioral result says those sounds must have done something. They must have been processed by the brain. Furthermore, the sound was a meow and your memory performance wasn't tell me what a cat makes, <laughs> what sound a cat makes. It was, well, the meow made you think of the cat in a sense while you're asleep implicitly perhaps. And then that made you think of the location of the cat and your memory performance was your location of the cat is improved as you try to remember where was that cat? Where did I see it last? And you identify that location more accurately because you, in a sense, reactivated that memory during your slow wave sleep. So uh, and now there are many, many studies showing that, that in fact, sounds aren't necessarily blocked. So that's getting back to our starting point. Not a lot of information might come in while you're asleep because you're not walking around, but it doesn't mean your brain is off and it doesn't mean your sensory <laughs> pathways aren't working. So sounds can come in and that influences what memories you're processing, but normally maybe there aren't that many sounds and memories are being processed every night uh, in your nice peace and quiet uh, of your sleep because you're not doing anything else and your brain is busy working on that stuff for your benefit. And actually I think not randomly, but I think if you have particular, and this is an idea from, from Winson and Cartwright, for example, they talked about how maybe during sleep, you're bringing up memories that you recently acquired, but also your goals and what's going on in your life and what are the challenges you're facing and what are the problems that you need to solve in your life? So bringing up the recent information, oh, I'm having this trouble with my friend and maybe bringing up old information that connects to that same issue and how you're struggling with it and maybe something that's going to help you get a solution. So I think we bring up information that's on our mind and that's that leads from one thing to another thing to another thing and that's the memory processing that happens during sleep. Not just anything coming up but things that connect to things that are on your mind the same way if I just tell you to, you know, close your eyes and 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 kick back for a few minutes your mind's going to start wandering. Where does it wander? seemingly random but with some structure to it you know what's on your mind what's been bugging you you know the issue that you suppress and now it comes back up and you're thinking how do i going to solve that problem and oh i had that same problem when i was 14 and <laughs> i remember this thing that you know so it can connect to memories and that's all part of connecting memories together and having consolidation move forward not just so you have memories but also so that you can deal with the struggles you're going to deal with the next day and potentially have ideas about how to cope with what's going to what's going to happen, the problems you might need to solve. Yeah, well, my dad used to 
you know, go to sleep with a problem and wake up with a solution. That doesn't happen to me. I'm maybe not as bright. Does that happen to you? You know, we study that in the lab. And I think that's one of our really exciting studies with uh, Mark Beeman, who's a colleague of mine at Northwestern who studies problem solving and creativity. Yeah. And yeah. so he and his student, uh, Kristen Sanders, got together this set of puzzles. So, you know, they're not solving uh, world hunger or something, but little puzzles that they would <laughs> they would give to people. And, and sometimes you could solve it right away, but a lot of times they couldn't come up with a solution. So everybody got six puzzles that they failed to solve in the lab. They went home and had a good night's sleep, uh, wearing some portable uh, sleep monitoring equipment we gave them. And the equipment registered when slow wave heat sleep happened and then presented three sounds that had been related to three of the six, three of the six problems that they had. So basically, we reminded them of three problems. And then came, they came to the, back to the lab the next day. We gave them the six problems again and measured how often they solved them. And their ability to solve the problem went way up quite a bit mm. for the ones we reactivated during their sleep. So that's the mm. problem that you haven't done that your father was good at is you need to have a method to get the problem to come back to you while you're asleep. Maybe you're just thinking about something else during sleep. But we showed that if we can provoke you to think about a specific problem, you're more likely to come up with a solution later. And so that, you know, connects with the old aphorism about, you know, sleeping on it, thinking it over, making right, a better right. decision. I think your brain would be doing that. And we just manipulated it experimentally to try to get a handle on it and to be able to study that, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a thing people think happens. But most of the evidence was anecdotal of just, you know, Paul McCartney woke up with his song in his mind, and somehow it came to him in his sleep. But we don't have, you know, evidence of that happening. Our study kind of moves us forward as saying, no, actually, we can, we can actually provoke it happen, and then study what is what are the brain mechanisms that helped you get to the solution. So I think your dad was certainly onto something. You, you know, that's slightly apocryphal about Paul McCartney. He woke up with, I think, one or two chords in his head, but not like. I think it was yesterday, right? The song. It wasn't a yeah. complete song by any means. He had to like work it out in the morning. So anyway. <laughs> and, and there are there are lots of other examples like that right, too, of people right. coming up with things. And and there's a cool study from my colleague Delphine Odiette in Paris where you could um just have that happen at the at the sleep onset period. So stage one, just as you're falling asleep, can be a, a, a huge time of creativity. And you can show that if people reach that stage. Uh, and, and have a little time in it, but don't go fully to sleep. Instead, wake up, which was Thomas Edison's method. You wake up to then, ask you about and that. you're more yeah. likely to come up with a solution, not immediately. So interestingly, almost like the example you gave with Paul McCartney, the, the results were that after some minutes, they would eventually get to the solution, but they would get to it more often if they had that period of this sweet spot of just a little bit of, of this this one period of sleep. And of course, we think REM sleep might be like that too. That's later in the night. So, you know, sleep has all this different power and different different components uh, to look at. Is that true? Um, sorry to be all over the place here. But is that First of all, is that true about Thomas Edison? So the story is he held like metal balls and would sit in a chair and start to doze off. And the purpose of holding the balls was that when he dozed off, he would drop them and it would make a clatter and wake him up. And that do you think that's true? <laughs> that's exactly the story. I mean, he described it. We, no one was recording his EEG at the time. 
So that's, you know, the study in Paris is so much better because they could actually say, here's what's happening. And they didn't, right. you know, people can hold a ball, but they could monitor their brain waves and do it as well. Salvador Dali also did something like that, that he described sure. in, a, in a crazy book about, you know, how to, how to get his uh, creativity going uh, by making use of this period. And, and there's something, uh, something else that, that folks around the same time uh, uh, did in sort of having this, this kind of sleep session of trying to go to sleep but use their sleep to provoke their creativity and and having kind of a, a in-between stage of not quite asleep and, and not quite awake and, and again all anecdotal stories but we think there's really something to it that you, we can go back now and it's just like the sleep learning stories from the 1950s of yeah it's not a, amazing things don't happen where you just acquire new knowledge while you're asleep but right. interesting things are happening in the brain. If we go back now and look at it, we can actually, you know, discover a lot more about what's happening in the mind that I think has been ignored uh, by a lot of sleep research. And 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 think of think of how important dreams are for us. That you know, all all kinds of people have dreams and like to talk about their dreams and have <laughs> you know incredible creativity. And yet, if you if you look in psychology departments across the country or elsewhere in the world, hardly anybody is studying dreams. It just didn't take on as you know a scientific endeavor that that seemed to be paying off for people because basically it was so limited and just kind of isolated mm. you know separate from sleep researchers that seemed to you know you can go to a sleep conference and you hardly see anything about dreams at all so it's kind of just pushed away I think in part because the methods were so limited if if the only thing you can do is talk to somebody and say. Uh, so tell me about your dream. What did you dream about? And that's the only data you get. It's really limited and hard to make progress. And now if we, we, if we kind of take on the neuroscience of dreaming, we can add a lot more to it and say, well, what's happening in the brain? How does that connect with the stories people have? And how does that re relate to other phenomenon of sleep, such as memory processing and the things we're looking at. So I think bringing it all together is going to enrich our understanding of all these different components of sleep. My wife hates it when I tell her about my dreams. She says it's the most boring thing in the world to hear about other people's dreams. But I imagine these days you hear about a lot of people's dreams, given the, the lucid dreaming work, especially that you've, you've been working on. And don't you like talking about your sleep, your dreams? Love Isn't it. it? It's, Love it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's this thing happened to you. <laughs> This in your own the original virtual reality. This 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 amazing thing happened, and of course you want to talk to people about it. Yeah, but l I want to talk about uh, your lucid dreaming work here because I, I want to make sure that we don't um, skip it. But um, I want to back up also and ask you uh, kind of a broad question about memory. So you know, talking about sleep and how that uh, helps solve problems, essentially bringing new things together in a creative mode. I used to think of memory as the storage of past events, but as I've come to appreciate more the notion that our brains are for movement and an action, I've come to think of memories and imagination as possible future actions or planning or as future oriented, essentially. Do, do you think of memory as future oriented or do you think of it as a store of our past or how do you think about that? <laughs> I, th I think you're you're right on when you when you say that you know we can use our memories to reminisce, and you know we can enjoy doing that and thinking about the things that we've done. But 
it's most beneficial for us when it guides our decisions about what to do in the future. And we can say, well, how should I behave in this circumstance? Remembering things that have happened in the past and have that knowledge and use it accordingly. So of course, memories are most important for how they guide our behavior, how they guide our decisions. Okay, good. I'm glad we're we're in agreement on that. So, but some people just like to remember. It's it's fun to remember things and think well, over it. The same way it's fun to remember your dreams. So you can kind of ask the same question. <laughs> well, what is my dream useful, or is it just you know some imaginary thing that happened? And again, and it also you can think about dreams as how incredible real they seem. So when you're in a dream, you think that it's reality. You think that you're awake. In other words and that you're wandering around and it's only at the moment you wake up usually where you say, wait a minute, none of that actually happened. That was all in my, in my mind It's just something I dreamed. And, and, and you can think of imagination similarly, right? Like I can imagine something happen. And when you do that, you know, it's, it's not quite as real. You're not really immersed in it the same yeah. way you are in a dream. So a dream is, you know, really supercharged imagination where you're actually there and you think it's real. And that, that tells us something pretty interesting, that the reality we have during the day, it's the same process. <laughs> it's our mind can make a reality and it has, you know, all the features of our world in it. And the very same thing happens when we're dreaming. So we actually don't need the sensory input <laughs> to have an experience of being here right in this moment. It's something that our brain's equipped to do. In fact, it's what our brain does to make us think we're in a world. And uh, that sort of puts another light on, you know, what is our reality about if it's something that our brain can, can make so real um, just in our dreams. And then it connects, so that, that should connect to what you mentioned, lucid dreaming. So lucid dreaming is when you're in a dream, but at the time you know that that's what's happening. You realize you're in a dream and the dream carries on. And then that has a different character because you're amazed that look how real everything looks. And, but yet it's, it's just a dream. And then you can go sometimes one step further and say, I wonder what's going to happen next. You know, maybe, you know, my old friend is in the next room. Let's go and see. And, you know, you might be able to meet someone that you wanted to talk to. You can, in fact, change the dream a little bit here and there to do what you want, to go where you want, to make things happen the way you might want to. And so that's, how it, lucid dreaming can be so exciting for people that like to engage in it. And yet it's a rare thing. So most people don't have very many lucid dreams. And the people that are good at it, maybe they have them more often, but not always on command. And so lucid dreaming has been challenging. And there are lots of books written about how to have <laughs> lucid dreams more often. And our approach to that is thinking about targeted memory reactivation. So what we do is we take our same method presenting, you know, not the meow sound connected to the cat, but now we want to connect to what you just learned before sleep that is about thinking about your current experience. So am I asleep right now, you could ask, or am I awake? And you can think about that carefully and try to think, well, does, does everything seem like my waking world or is anything weird? And you can get in a mode of checking that. And we have people do that before they go to sleep connected to a sound. <laughs> The sound might be a little violin hitting a few notes or, you know, whatever we want to use. We connect that experience. And when you hear that sound, you're saying, oh, yeah, let me check. Am I awake now or am I asleep? And then our method, of course, is when you're asleep, we're monitoring the EG and we can see what stage you're in. And we can present that sound again 
and it reminds you to get in that mode of carefully checking your experience. And that can provoke often people to go into a lucid dream and understand, mm -hmm. oh yes, I'm now in a lucid dream, uh, let's explore it. And furthermore, they know the experimenters are recording my brain activity right now, oh, as well as yeah. my eye movements. And I can talk to them with signals because I can't talk to them with my mouth because in your sleep, you're laying in bed, you're not moving, you're not speaking, but your eyes can move. And so we have people arranged so that they can move their eyes left, right, left, right. And we can see the electroactivity that that gets generated from our electrodes. And they can tell us, I just realized I'm in a dream. They make a specific left, right signal to tell us that. And then we know they're in a dream and we can continue to uh, monitor their brain activity or also provoke them to have a particular type of dream. So our first experiments to try to show if we could communicate with people that we published last year were to present them questions that they could answer. And we decided on math problems because <laughs> then we would know what the right answer was. And we could tell, did they hear the problem correctly? Because we weren't sure they would. And if they heard it correctly, could they actually think logically to compute the answer and give us the answer? And we found that in fact, yes, repeatedly, we could get people to hear our question, think about the answer, signal the answer back with their eye movements, or now we use sniffs. You can also sniff with mm -hmm. your nose, go, <laughs> and you can make a little oh, code. Okay. Yeah. And, and we can measure that because we can measure the air going in and out of the nostrils with a little tube. And they can answer our questions, and then we can ask them uh, in the future studies, what are, what are they dreaming about right now? Are you, you know, and understand more about dreams in real time, getting the information. But our first study was just demonstrating that we can in fact communicate in real time with people. We can have a dialogue, we can ask questions, they can answer the questions. And that, as you mentioned, got a lot of interest in the press because it's sort of a, an exciting discovery that sleep, here's something we didn't know about sleep, we didn't know it would be possible to get information in and get information back out from people so that we can communicate with them and learn about their dream in, in real time with this method. This is a crude question, but why do we care about communicating with dreamers? Well, I think it, going back to what I was saying before, if you want to study dreams and you've only got what they said when they woke up, you don't even know exactly when that happened. And yeah. we want to have a neuroscience of it. So we want to measure the brain activity, understand what is that brain activity telling us, and connect that to, and what's their experience at that moment? And we can't ask them mm -hmm. about their experience when they wake up because they can't really connect or they've forgotten a lot of it, or in fact, sometimes it's distorted. And our studies also show sometimes communication happens and there's a real event we know happened and they wake up and they don't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we forget so much, you know. So another aspect of dream research is that you're just measuring a little teeny bit of this whole, you know, everyone's having lots of dreams every night and you're remembering a teeny little fraction of it. So we wanna get better, we wanna really probe what's happening during sleep and ask some questions about uh, what's what the process of the dream is and connecting it back to the other research of, and how does that relate to memory consolidation? Mm -hmm. And how mm -hmm. does that relate to problem solving and the creativity of your dream, which is amazing. And how does that relate to what, what is the brain? Why is the brain doing that in the first place? Because I think that's a wide open question that we don't really understand. Why do we, why do we have these dreams? Why do we have slow wave sleep interspersed with REM sleep and going back and forth? There must be some good reason for that. And we're still struggling to put together 
stories about how that makes sense. And I think we have to think about, you know, not just asking about uh, one aspect of sleep, but think about the whole combination of sleep and how does it promote uh, better health? How does it regulate our cardiovascular system and how does it regulate our uh, psychological um, endeavors, thinking about the problems we're having and so forth. So trying to put that whole package together and keeping dreams on the table too, as mm. part of it, not just a, a one we want to push aside because it's so messy to study. Did you did you ever think that you'd be studying dreams when you first got into neuroscience? Well, I think for I think I always thought dreams were fascinating, but looking at the literature, it seemed like a big mess, and you know you didn't want to get in there because there wasn't you know, didn't seem like much progress was being made. And so now I'm a lot more optimistic and I have these uh, wonderful students and postdocs that are working on these issues and are going to take it to the next level and, and move dream research to a better place. So yeah, I shied away from it because of the, the history of, you know, yeah. uh, theories that just weren't testable yeah. <laughs> about yeah. dreams because that's not really good science. And now I think, no, we're going to have a better set of theories and a better ways to test them and, you know, more things to measure that can allow us to then make some progress and really understand more about it and, and then circle back and sort of try to ask the question, well, and how is this useful people for people? How how can we be sure that sleep is uh, functioning optimally if it can? Or, mm. you know, it's part of a lot of uh, problems that people have. If you look at PTSD or depression, there are components of sleep that aren't working well. And you can think of that as a symptom of these disorders. But perhaps it's also really part of the cause. It's part of the problem is it's contributing. What's, what's not working right in sleep is contributing to the problems people have during the day. So I think correcting those problems uh, might help us all sleep better if we can sort of figure out how to, you know, what are, the, what, are, what are the ways in which sleep is helping us and what our mental activity during life is giving to us and to what extent is it hindering us or hurting us uh, if it's not working well. So I, I guess like any experimental setup, you are essentially perturbing someone's ongoing cognition, right? Their otherwise natural ongoing cognition in the world by your experimental variable. And of course, when you induce a lucid dream in someone, um, part, of the, part of the reason is, like you said, you can, you can change their dreams, right? Intentionally um, and, and have them... Well, the, the, the question is, um, how confounding is it scientifically and how much do you worry about how you're affecting a their sleep. You know, I know some people wake up when they're cued, but you know, you throw those studies out, right? They're, they're not valid. Um, but just interfering with their sleep in any way does that worry you that it's affecting the interpretation of the results? Yeah, I think that's a fine point, and and the best answer to that is well, we we need very multiple methods to use. We need to attack. We need to attack these problems in many different ways. And manipulating what's happening during sleep is one of the methods. And as we do that, we're seeing more and more of the physiological signals that we can measure out of the mm -hmm. EEG and try to understand them. And then we can go back and other studies don't present sounds during sleep, but still measure those signals and see how they relate. So that sort of gives us a potential of convergence between the different methods so that we can, again, exclude this idea that the, the, uh, uh, manipulations of sleep isn't all just an artifact and not what's really happening. If we can go back to undisturbed sleep where there aren't noises and see the same sorts of things happening and the relationships between the spindles and the slow waves and the later memory performance. So I think what we do have is actually convergence from different methodologies, different ways to study sleep 
that uh, point in the same directions. And, and yes, we can be more convinced by the ideas that get demonstrated in different ways. For example, this, this, the importance of slow waves. There are studies that show that you can induce more slow waves with a entrainment methods that are, can be electrical or auditory and entrain more slow waves. And the result of that is often improved memory. And so that's a correlation between memory and slow waves that's demonstrated there. But you can also see that in other studies where you're not perturbing the slow waves and also mm. see the relationships. And in our studies where we're presenting sounds during sleep and how does that connect to, well, what phase of the slow waves is it happening? And actually, does that make a difference? It seems to make a difference. So it also converges on the idea that something's important is happening in these with these slow waves and then bring in the spindles as another measure. So I think uh, you're right that every method has its potential sure. shortcomings yeah. and we, we have to not sort of deny those, take those on board, and then think about how do we make progress with other methods that have different shortcomings and yeah. bring them all together in that sense. So that's the, the typical method, methodological approach. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm sure you get asked that all the time. Uh, you were talking about future studies and sort of expanding the range of types of questions and the vision of someone being able to more... Uh, thoroughly describe the content of their dreams and their conscious experiences w within dreams. So immediately I thought, well, there's, you know, originally you're asking math questions, very simple math questions, because it depended on how many eye movements someone can make. So you can't ask 97 times three because that's too many eye movements, for example. So there seemed yeah, to be the like, one subject mis misheard our question and they, they said, how am I going to give you 22? Because <laughs> 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 they misheard what the problem was. After they woke up, they, they, uh, they told us that's what they, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, but, but then I had, uh, just as, as we were talking, I had this flash of, you know, you could potentially, hook someone up uh, to a brain machine interface, right? The EEG and decode th their, somehow decode their thoughts into a cursor on a screen, right? Where they, or, or like a keyboard where they could type in their dream and just write out the contents um, slowly, I suppose. But so it, it made me start to think like, what are the current limitations or obstacles that you see? Many of which I'm sure there are, but what is like right now, grinding on you what are you what problems are you solving in your sleep you know uh to um to make these future studies plausible and beneficial uh so you're asking specifically within studies of lucid dreaming how to how to how to make the communication work better well uh, it's all connected i know so um it could be that but you might have some other pressing problems just related to cognition and memory and you know what's what do, you, what do you feel like you're up against now that you need to get past to make real progress? Yeah, the, there's always a string of such problems. Uh, here's one. We, we've been trying to use our methods not only in the laboratory, but in people's homes so that they can, as I mentioned in one of the prior studies, take home some of the technology, some wearable equipment to monitor their sleep. And Is this the present, app? It's, it's connected to that. So we, we've, okay. we've done some studies at home with different kinds of apps that can monitor, take the signals of, of we get from monitoring sleep, either from a headband or from a Fitbit watch that measures heart rate too. And we can try to use that to present sounds to people, 
but we don't know exactly how noisy their room is. Do they have a fan on? Do they have, you know, music yeah. from their neighbor playing? So we're, we're, you know, it's not as controlled as the laboratory, but yet we want to make that work. And one of the things we found that we didn't expect to find was that actually the sounds presented during sleep can sometimes make memory worse. And uh, together with some other research, we have the idea now that if the sounds arouse you from sleep, then it's detrimental to memory. And our laboratory studies, we we're always very careful and we would monitor sleep. We'd be looking at the EG and if the sounds were too loud and we saw potentially you were going to wake up, we'd back off and stop the sounds and then present them softer. And so we could do that online and we got good at that. And so our studies were working and memory improvements were seen with skill learning, with spatial learning, lots of different types of memory, face name learning. And then we saw that uh, uh, in the home studies, it wasn't working so well. And then we were able to look more carefully at the data and see that, well, actually when it was working, when the sounds were too loud, it was actually going the other way. And the sounds had to be really down to a low level to not disrupt sleep. And so now we have that understanding that we're going to take forward and say, okay, we have to be really careful when we do this at home because it's not the same as being in the lab where we can adjust it moment by moment, but we have to kind of... Uh, connect the, the software to actually be able to do that and to be monitoring moment by moment with our measures and then change uh, on the fly. And so that's that's sort of an interesting uh, aspect of it that we hadn't realized at first because mm. we kept getting results that were showing memory improvements and not realizing that we actually had, to, we really had to titrate that sound <laughs> level quite carefully to be not too soft and not too loud and we, we, I guess we got lucky when we did it the first time. Huh. But it, we, we picked a good level that was that was in there because you know we were we were worried about waking people up. We knew that well, if we wake people up, that's no good because then we won't know if it's actually a sleep phenomenon or not. So right. we had to really be way careful on on uh, on the parameters to be sure we weren't waking waking people up. And so now, uh, as you mentioned, we have a, a, another app we've made made available publicly, and so. Uh, the studies we've been doing with the apps have been mostly focused on slow wave sleep and the memory improvements that we can get from reminding people of what they learned before sleep. And that's exciting. Uh, but this other world is what about presenting sounds during REM sleep that can provoke them into having a lucid dream and then provoke them into a particularly lucid dream that they maybe wanted to have, but didn't remember <laughs> that that's what they wanted to do. And so the first step is provoking the lucid dreams. And with Karen Conkley in my lab, we've developed the methods to, uh, and, and, and uh, Michelle Carr and others have worked on the methods to try to make that work with the training before sleep. Uh. And so now we're doing that training on an app that then you can uh, use in your own home, get the training, go to sleep and get the sound again when the uh, technology thinks you're in REM sleep. And so we're doing that with a Fitbit that connects to a, a, a smartphone that's running our software and controlling the whole thing. And that's what we've made available on the internet for people to download. They can get that software, but they have to have their own smartphone that's an Android phone, and they have to have their own Fitbit that's the kind that are, controls heart rate, but if they, uh, measures heart rate. But if they have those two things, they can go ahead and, and run the software and try to have a lucid dream. And 
we you know we're not we're not marketing this as something that already works rather we're saying it works in our laboratory and we're trying to get it to work remotely and people are welcome to try it and help get us the data you know more citizen science that can help get us yeah. the data to show when does it work and help us perfect it and make it better and so that's that's where we are now so at my website for my lab which maybe you could give somewhere i'll link to your it. Yeah. information I'd love people to go out there and use this. Again, if you have an Android phone and a Fitbit, you can download the software for free and give it a try and we'll get the data and we'll find out, well, how many lucid dreams do people have? And is it getting close to what we can do in our laboratory when we can get, I don't know, sometimes 50% of people can get a lucid dream uh, with one night of this thing. So we'd love to be able to make that work in the home. And again, it's a challenge of presenting the sounds not too loud, yeah, <laughs> not too yeah. soft, and at the right time, because the sounds have to be there when they're in REM sleep, ideally. Uh, at least that's what works well in our laboratory. And, and yet we're not measuring the EG. So we're not actually getting the best measure one could get of REM sleep, but we're getting an approximation. You know, the, the wearable technology, the Fitbit or the Aura Ring, they're not the same as in the laboratory, but maybe it's good enough for this purpose to actually hit sometimes uh, and and give people a lucid dream. And then the next step after that will be, uh, you can perhaps, you know, I'm imagining a future version of the software where you could put in, well, what, what do I wanna have my lucid dream about once I get into my lucid dream? And you could have another sound that would cue you to remember <laughs> what it is you wanted to dream about and then control the dream. Like, let's say you have some problem and you want to talk to someone that could help your solution. Maybe your old dad or your grandfather could help you, or maybe Einstein. And you could say, you know, I think Einstein might be in the next room. Let's go check. <laughs> and, but Einstein is created in your head. So yeah, you're it's asking all there. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all you, but it's unleashing a different kind of creativity yeah, than that right. you might not so easily access in your waking state. But yeah, it's not, it's not actually Einstein. <laughs> That's, that's presumptuous. I'm going to go ask Einstein, aka me, about my problems. I would be amiss not to ask you. The, you know, the the podcast is mostly about neuroscience, it turns out, but I'm also interested in AI and the interface between artificial intelligence and neuroscience. And you know, through the years, there have been sort of nods, one might say, marketing nods towards sleep as being important. It's known sleep is important for whatever reasons, like the reasons that we were talking about. And so you have things named like the sleep-wake algorithm from a dozen or two years ago. And you know, even more modern artificial networks are doing things like adding sinusoidal noise at various times during training to sort of mimic some of the functions of sleep. Uh, but really, there, you know, I know that the science of sleep is an ever-advancing frontier and you know we're not we don't have all the answers yet but if i were an ai researcher and i asked you what what is it about sleep like what what can i take from sleep to incorporate to make my models better what would you say well that's a good question i think uh all the things we're learning about how the human brain works could potentially inform ai i guess and the questions are which which of the nuggets that are going to be most beneficial so you know, the goal of AI isn't to recreate what the human brain does. 
I'm sure, but you're you're saying, but maybe there's some good hints there that could help us do it better. And so offline processing of memory is something that my computer doesn't do. And I'm quite happy with that. You know, I put <laughs> a file on my computer and then I go get it later and it's the same file and it hasn't changed. That's good. Yeah. But, but yeah. all the information we put in our brains doesn't stay statically stored that way. And and yes, we have forgetting, but we also have generalization. We have, you know, interesting things that happen as we consolidate and do this offline memory processing. So uh, I think we haven't understood it quite well enough to say exactly how to do it. But yes, offline memory processing could be beneficial for a system to work through some of the information that it has. So if if an AI has uh, gained a lot of knowledge, perhaps it should uh, try to organize it in some ways. And, and this mechanism we have during sleep is kind of a self-powered reorganization. And like in one article I wrote for Frontiers for Young Minds, which is a journal for kids, I wrote, uh, does, uh, uh, how did the title go? Do, do, do house elves clean your brain while you sleep? And yeah. So the idea here is that somebody's in there organizing things and probing for connections that make things fit together better and working with the information. And so this offline memory processing could help organize things so you can find them better. And how do we find them? Well, we don't find our memories by looking up the code of, of what what bit stored it. We don't have a register by the date and saying, tell me things that happened two weeks ago last Wednesday. We don't have, you know, that's not the way memories are organized. They're organized by the content. And so there, it's sort of content addressable that you have to say, well, what's what's the related thing that happened two weeks ago and, and eventually get to the right memory and work your way there. And so that structure of organization means that you have to have all these connections to see how things are related to each other to eventually find anything. And I guess AI doesn't necessarily work that way. That, yeah. you know, the information is structured in a way that, that kind of, you know, where different things are put. And in our brain, it's all put together. And as we like to say, memories aren't stored in a vacuum, but they're stored in this interactive way, which we think actually comes up during sleep. One of my postdocs latest papers is about how when we reactivate memories during sleep, it's not just a specific item that gets activated, but the context of that. And then the context uh, of all the interrelationships that might connect are part of the reactivation, not just a single thing that you wanted to connect, but all the interconnections. And so that seems to be part of the way our brains are organized. And could there be some way to organize AI structures that would have the benefits of that, I guess, and the costs of that would come too. Yeah. So, so you'd have yeah. to decide whether that's good for your structure. Yeah, I mean, there's also the different phases of sleep, right? And the different cognitive functions associated with those different phases and wakefulness, as we were just uh, talking about earlier. So it's, yeah, I mean, you know, in the one sense, it can sound silly, like, well, what can you, should you make a, a network that has different states of wakefulness, you know, and, and sleep? That sounds kind of silly, right? But, but like you're saying, maybe there are some principles that we can incorporate, you know, like replay is a big one that um, that has been built into a lot of um, machine learning networks. And, you know, there are uh, models out there that show that replay is important, likely for generalization, et cetera. But that also happens when you're awake. So, you know, it's not clear if there's something definitive about sleep and dreams uh, and, and different phases of sleep, et cetera, that would really benefit 
um, artificial intelligence. But you know, your overall picture, do you think that it would be important to include some principles, whatever those principles might be, like you were just talking about? Or do we want to st- these static entities, right? Oh, oh he, he just rolled his eyes, folks. You know, it's an audio <laughs> podcast, so they, they can't see that. But it was a kind eye roll, though. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. I, and it's just a question for the AI experts. And I guess yeah, the, okay. the field is fun because lots of people can try different things and you'll find out what works sort of that way by by people playing around and, and seeing seeing if there are potential uh, benefits from doing such things. So so it's right. hard to say. I, from my perspective, I couldn't tell what's, what's going to work better in these different circumstances. But because I'm more interested in, well, let's get something that does what the human brain does as a vehicle for understanding ourselves and our brains yeah. better, which right, is not right. the goal of AI. <laughs> but That's it's the goal an of ally, a small portion of AI. Goal. But, yeah, it's yeah, allied yeah. there because it's like it's it's going to help us understand ourselves, and it and then it's part of the science of of uh, understanding the brain. Speaking of playing around, I, I want to close on this because I, I opened with your interest in consciousness and how that kind of set you, you know, along your path. And now you, I don't know if you've really come back because to the study of consciousness because you never really left it in the sense that you were studying memory and declarative memories and uh, conscious types of memories. But I'm wondering if you have advice to people based on your own experience, you know, about how to go about, you know, for example, you were given advice to go to neuroscience rather than psychology, right? To study consciousness. And you thought that that was good advice. But in some sense, you've kind of, you've kind of come full circle. And I don't know if you're, I don't know if this has been rewarding, this latest like lucid dreaming and consciousness and dreams, if that's been rewarding based on your early interest in consciousness. But how do you see your own path? Um, you know, it's not not necessarily that these things happen intentionally, right? I think of my own path as a big scribble of uh, unintentional things where you have to make decisions where to go next. But do you have advice for the you know people who are interested in getting into neuroscience or psychology based on their interest on consciousness or lucid dreaming, for example? Is there a right way to do it? Well, to your question about whether it's rewarding, yes, it's it's great fun. I feel very uh, fortunate to be able to play around in science and get to come up with ideas and, and do different research to have that flexibility to have my own lab where I can just get an idea and go off and do something. It's great. And yeah. there's so many more things to study that are interesting. Uh, and I guess I would advise my students and others usually that you find something you're passionate about and dig into that passion and see where it goes. And you guess you need some building blocks. So you, you basically, you have, limited opportunities as students. You don't have your own lab, so you can't do whatever you want. You find some other place to work where you can gain the skills that you want to have so that eventually you can use them to all the other things you might be interested in. For example, one of my current postdocs worked heavily in cognitive neuroscience to study working memory and just some basic memory stuff because he wanted to then have those skills so he'd go off and study lucid dreaming. And mm. that's that's great. He's got this whole armamentarium of of you know abilities now, and he had to put in some work and study you know uh, all these basic things to have the tool tools to then go on and do these other things. So uh, it's great if you have a passion for a particular thing, but sometimes you have to put that on hold as you you know gather the expertise that you have that takes years to gather. As you know, how do you do science? How do you play the whole? game and do all the different parts of science to be able to get to the point of of having the luxury of 
than going off and running with new ideas. And I think, you know, academia is great in that sense that it gives a lot of people this ability to play and, and go go try different things. But you, you have to figure out, well, how to make it work. And if you need to get funding, how do you get funding that allow you to do the things you want to do? So you have to convince other people that it's worthwhile doing and figure out how to how to do that successfully. So that, that takes a lot of time to work within the system. And it'd be yeah. it'd be fun if you could just open your own, you know, I guess if you're incredibly wealthy, you could just go in your basement and do all kinds of stuff like <laughs> that without, you know, that would be the old fashioned way that these <laughs> things were done. Uh, but these days, you know, you, you can work as part of these teams. And I think, you know, even in industry, there are lots of exciting things that are going on. And if you can find the right people to work with in industry, you can do some wonderful things and develop your ideas and, and new technology, new directions, new applications. So there, there's all sorts of uh, different ways to to uh, to envision how this is how this could work for you. But but I think you know just understanding science in school it's it's so different when you learn science in school. You're just learning well. What are the facts that people already gathered? Yeah. And a little bit about how they got them. But it really, how does it work now? And you don't get to do this other exciting thing of, we don't actually know something. What's a question I have that I want to get the answer to? And how do you design an experiment that's actually going to move you ahead in understanding this thing and kind of try to solve a mystery that hasn't been solved yet? And that's, you know, that's different than reading textbooks about stuff. It's going off on some adventure uh, story and trying to to get some new pieces to put it together. And that's, that's what's really so, so much fun and, and, and great to do collaboratively with a bunch of people because you bring in different ideas and move things forward in, in, in exciting ways where you, you can't actually see where it's going to go and it has to develop on its own. So it's wonderful for us to be training more scientists to do all these sorts of things that mm. are going to be the future ideas. I remember, I think when I was young, I didn't know I wanted to be a scientist, but I kind of thought maybe being an inventor would be fun. Uh, invent stuff and then i and then i thought well but all the cool things have already been invented of course so i yeah. guess maybe that's not a good idea after all <laughs> and so uh, i think science is so open-ended because we can we can kind of see the more we learn the more new questions come up and we can kind of say all the, there are all these things that are, have yet to be figured out that the students of the future will get to tackle and and i think um these explorations of memory research and how it intersects sleep research and this all these uh progressions are opening up new opportunities that we hadn't envisioned before about research directions and i guess that's always the way it works that there's more and more openings coming up that that get you excited about the future and then of course we we also want to say and how is this useful so it's it's yeah. great to do science for science sake and just just explore getting new knowledge but then it's nice to also have this other dimension of, well, can this be useful to help people uh, that have certain disorders or can it be useful to help people develop empathy? If you're trying to work to be a more compassionate person, how do you, how do you build that into your learning and how does memory consolidation make that work better? We're exploring some ideas like that, that I think are you know going to be more important and, and can connect to, you know, what's happening in the world and how do we make the society work better? And, you know, how do we, how do we help deal with 
global warming and you know climate oh, problems because <laughs> we have to think well how do people make decisions and and how come we're so short-sighted and selfish and how to how do we get past that to to do better because the world needs that and so you know it's it's fun to do science and make little progress and it's even wonder more wonderful if we can make that useful for our society and and you see that happening in so many different ways uh so i think that makes us be optimistic about the future that we can think of more more and more ways that uh, our work can be useful. Well, Ken, continued success and luck in your future, future. not that you need it, but, um, and, and thanks for taking the time to speak to me. This is, you know, I have about, as always, I have about a thousand more questions to ask you, but, um, but we covered a lot of ground and I really appreciate the time you spent here. So thanks. Oh, it's great to be with you. And I, I appreciated getting to chat. A lot of fun. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair